Shalom. This is Gary Durashinsky, Congregational Leader of Beth Ariel Messianic Congregation. Thank you for downloading our message. We're delighted to make it available to you through the generous donations of our members and friends at Beth Ariel. We know that many are struggling financially because of the challenges facing our economy, and we do not want financial issues to keep anyone from enjoying our teachings. So please continue to listen in as often as you like. But if our presentations have been beneficial to you, and you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at bethariel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Also, please remember to pray for us, that we would be responsive to the Lord's guidance as we reach out to the lost sheep of the House of Israel in the greater Los Angeles area. Thank you, and I hope you enjoyed this message. But uh, so whose land is it? By the way, this is a photograph of the land of Israel that I was able to take. When you go to Yad Vashem, which is the memorial to the six million Jewish people and others that was slaughtered during the Nazis in Europe. When you go to the museum, there's uh, a building that houses all kinds of artifacts, For me, the most moving artifact that is there was a film. And the film was actually a stream. Have you seen it? A stream of old videos, home movies, that were taken of Jewish communities, Jewish stettles, back in the early 1900s, 1920, late 1800s. And they sort of patched them all together. And so what they do is, as you're looking at this screen, it's sort of like going in a circle, you know? And the videos, these home movies that were taken by individuals, they're streamed together, and then they put sound to them. Like, you know, so if you saw a cart drawn by a horse with Jewish Orthodox uh, fellas that were sitting on it, you'd hear like the feet, you know, going, you'd hear the wheels sort of turning, and you would hear maybe that little Hebrew being spoken, you know, and then it morphs into another town scene. It almost looks like you're looking at one grand picture of Jewish life in Europe that no longer exists because of what the Nazis had done. And when you walk out of that building, the back side of it, there's a huge um, uh, balcony. And you stand on the balcony and you're looking out toward Jerusalem and the whole land of Israel. It's kind of, you know, it's very moving where you have this imagery of the Jewish suffering, Jewish loss, the giving up of these communities in Eastern Europe. But then when you come out of the building, you see what the Jewish people gained. You know, and this is just one photograph. So I thought of whose land is it? Well, here's a scene of the land of Israel. And why is this of such significance? Now, these are some things that I've recently learned. Um, this mayor of Jerusalem, 1899, he said, who can challenge the rights of the Jews in Palestine? He says, good Lord, historically, it is really your country, you know. Uh, why is it that many Arabs today can't understand what the mayor of Jerusalem in 1899 understood and wrote? Lord Robert Cecil in 1918, an English lawyer, politician, and diplomat, he said, it is indeed not the birth of a nation, 
It's not the birth of a nation. For the Jewish nation, through centuries of oppression and captivity, have preserved their sentiment of nationality as few peoples could. It is the rebirth of a nation. And that is very expressive of the miraculous nature of the Jewish people. From 70 AD, let's just use that as a rough point in time, the Jewish people scattered to the four corners of the earth. The scattering actually took place sooner, but let's just say 70 AD. That's less than 2,000 or about 2,000 years before the statehood of Israel in 1948. And yet here's this people. It has never happened in any other period of history. It's never happened to any other group of people that a people would be dispersed from their homeland, uh, taken from their homeland, exiled from their homeland, dispersed to the four corners of the earth. I mean, today you can find Chinese Jews. You can find Jews from India. You can find Jews from Africa. You can find Jews from South America. You can find Jews from uh, North America. You can find Jews from all over the world. In fact, I even once, when I was traveling to Canada, and I stopped by the, one of these, uh, ki- not kiosks, what do you call one of these, t- you know, um, just uh, places where you would get your tickets, you know, your counter, and it was for Mohawk Airlines. And so I went to that. I said, you know, the Jews have been up in Canada too. He said, really? He said, yeah, they're the Schmohawks. But he didn't, he didn't like that one. But you can find Jews all over. And yet here they are back into their homeland, back where God had originally from the time of Abraham given them this land and speaking their own language. It is very unique. It's one of a kind moment and experience. And so he says, it is indeed not the birth of a nation for our people have always existed from the time of Abraham to the present, but it is a rebirth as the Jewish people in 1918 and the Balfour Declaration was uh, around that same time issued. They were coming into the land of Israel in greater numbers. They had come earlier, my own family, I have family members that had settled in Israel in 1892. That's during the second wave of, of immigrants to, uh, to the land of Israel. My great-grandfather settled in Rosh Pinah. He built the synagogue there. And, uh, it, you know, it's sort of like a museum piece today when Jew- Israelis go on tour to see about, learn about the early establishment of the land of Israel. They come into Rosh Pinah, they learn about my great-grandfather. And they see the synagogue he built. They see the Aron Kodesh that he built and that he uh, had served. And if you go to Israel, you'll go to the kibbutz at the Sea of Galilee called Kibbutz Ginnasar. And on that kibbutz, you'll see a boat that was discovered in the 1980s, the only first century boat found on the Sea of Galilee. And it's housed there and you would see it. And it is all my relatives that discovered that boat. The, my, my relatives were the fishermen that discovered it, the archaeologist that was able to salvage it out of the Sea of Galilee was Orna Cohen, who is a relative of mine, a cousin of mine, that descends from my great-grandfather when he immigrated to Israel. So it was the rebirth of the people. This king of the Arab kingdom, Emir Faisal, we Arabs, especially the educated among us, look with deepest sympathy on the Zionist movement. We will wish the Jews a hearty welcome home 
Our two movements complement one another. How things have changed. Winston Churchill said, it is manifestly right that the scattered Jews should have a national center and a national home and be reunited. And where else but in Palestine, with which for 3,000 years they have been intimately and profoundly associated. Where else? You know, the early Zionist Congress in Basel, Switzerland, 1897, the very first Zionist Congress that was led by Theodore Herzl. Chaim Weissman was a part of that Congress, as were many other leading Jews of that time. Because the Jewish people in Russia during the pogroms were suffering so terribly, the Zionist Congress had suggested with England's permission and acceptance that the Jewish people would establish a homeland not in Palestine, but in Africa, in what is today the country of Uganda. And at that time, it was a colony owned by the British. The British were willing to give it to the Zionist Congress for Jews to settle in so that the Jews in Russia, who were being terribly persecuted, and you get images of that in the Fiddler on the Roof play, for example. But uh, the Congress then brought it before the Jewish representatives at the first Zionist Congress. And they said, we have opportunity to save the Jews of Russia by taking Britain's lead, accepting it, and going to Uganda and establishing a Jewish homeland or a homeland for the Jewish people in what would become Uganda. The Jews, by the way, in Europe and other parts of the world, all voted in favor of accepting that proposal. The only Jews that rejected it were the Russian Jews who were suffering. And they said, you can accept Uganda all you want. We're not going. We would rather suffer in Russia than go to the land that the Lord has not given to us. And so it was rejected because of the Russian Jews. It would be many years later, little by little, that Jews would come back into the land in greater numbers. There were always Jews in the land buying up properties that were being sold to them legitimately and legally. And then in 1948, after the Holocaust, becoming a state. So the question is, whatever King Faisal says or Winston Churchill says or Lord Cecil says or any of these individuals say or any individuals today, the important thing is, what does the Bible have to say? about the land of Israel and its relationship to the Jewish people. The starting point is Genesis chapter 12. That's where we start. And when you read this passage, notice the different things that God promises to the Jewish people. First of all, he says, The Lord said to Abram, that was his name before God would change it in Genesis 17, to Avraham. Avraham, uh, Avraham means father of many nations, Avram means father of nation. So the Lord said to Avram, leave your country, your people, your father's household. Go to the land I will show you. And this is what he tells him he will do. Number one, the Lord says, I will make you a great nation. The Lord says, I will bless you. The Lord says, I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. The Lord says, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. The Lord says, and all peoples, non-Jews now, those that are not descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, in 
point of fact, Abraham wasn't a Jew then, right? Abraham is a Chaldean. He's called out by God. It's only afterwards that he becomes a Hebrew. Later, he's made reference to that, which means, comes from the Hebrew word avar, which means to cross over. Once Abraham crosses over the Yarmuk River, which is near the Sea of Galilee, and enters into the Promised Land, he's no longer referred to as a Chaldean. He is now called a Hebrew, one who crosses over and becomes what God would, has called him to become, the father of a great nation. But here he says, all peoples, all Gentiles will be blessed through Abraham. What an incredible blessing that is given to this man. To your offspring, he says, I will give this land. Now, Martin Luther, I know we don't all champion him, but he says an interesting thing here from Genesis 12. Now there follows the right promise, which ought to be written in golden letters and proclaimed in all lands and for which we ought to praise and glorify. This is the heart and soul of the biblical revelation. Everything flows from Genesis 12. Three major pillars that the scriptures stand on is found here. The first pillar is the pillar or the, the, the spoke or the leg. Imagine a stool with three. You need all three for this stool to stand. One is the promise of blessing. And he said it many times, you will be a blessing. You will bless all peoples of the earth. And I will bless those who bless you and curse them. Blessing is a key component of the promise to Abraham. A second component is the land. I will give this land. Second important component from this, from which the rest of the scriptures all flow out from. And the third thing is offspring, the descendant. In fact, God is going to build on all three of these qualities, all three of these promise elements. We can't talk about them now, but I wanted to put them out before you to illustrate what Luther is saying is right. This needs to be written in golden letters, proclaimed for all to see, because it all starts here. Everything, the plan of redemption, God's plan of redemption through Israel, the coming of Messiah, your offspring, the significance of the land, the means by which we receive the blessings of God. You know, when you read Psalm 122, pray for the peace of Jerusalem, they shall prosper that love thee. The blessings of God come in connection with one's attitude toward the people God has chosen. I will bless them that bless thee. These are things we cannot minimize or watered down, because as Luther says, they should be written in golden letters, proclaimed in all lands, and they ought to lead us to praise and glorify the living God. So he goes on to say that first, so here are the points I'd like to make from this passage. First of all, notice he said to your offspring, I will give the land. The first thing we need to realize is that the land that is promised is a literal piece of real estate. It has clearly defined boundaries. He is not talking about heaven. He's talking about a piece of real estate in the land, on the earth. For if he meant something else, why does Abraham pack up his stuff and move somewhere? He would have stayed right where he was. Why does God say, leave and go? 
He doesn't just say go. He says, go, go. Lech laha. Make sure you go. It's a command. Well, go where? To the land I will show you. So where does he go? To the spot God has for him. The piece of real estate. A literal plot of land he was to get to. He's not talking about heaven. And by the way, the scriptures are very clear that he's not talking of heaven because even in the Brit Hadashah, it says, by faith, Abraham, when he called, when he was called to go to a place, he would later receive as his inheritance. He obeyed and he went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land, like a stranger in a foreign country. He's not talking about heaven. He's talking about the land to which he went. He lived in tents on the land that God led him to. So we're talking about a literal piece of real estate. But there's more to this. In Genesis 15, we're told that what the boundaries are, they're clearly defined. We haven't even gotten very far in the Bible yet. We're only 15 chapters in. We haven't even gotten very far into Abraham's life. We're only three chapters in from there. And he's already telling him, on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. This isn't just not a statement. This is a covenant. He's binding himself to make this come about. And he says, to your descendants, there's our offspring again. To your descendants, I give this land. And here we've got it. From the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. These are real rivers in our world today, that we know where they are or we have a good idea where they are. Notice, first of all, that the river of Egypt can refer to the Nile and it could also refer to what's called the Wadi El Arish. I'm partial to the latter view, but some take it to the Nile. If it's the Nile, it means God is giving them all the Sinai Peninsula. If it doesn't, it means he's excluding the Sinai Peninsula. But in either case, we know The general whereabouts, whether it includes the Sinai or not, that's its southern boundary. To the north is the Euphrates River as it flows up north of Syria. So we know where its northern borders are. And we know the land in between is what he's giving them. Well, we know its western border because you've got the Mediterranean. Can't go any further west and you're back in water. And we know its eastern border because you can't go beyond the Jordan. And that's what Abraham crossed. The Yarmuk flows into the Jordan River. So we know its borders. It's bordered either by the Nile, including the Sinai, or the Wadi El Arish, which excludes the Sinai. It's bordered on the west by the Mediterranean. It's bordered on the north by the Euphrates. It's bordered on the east by the Jordan. This is not heaven. Those rivers don't exist in heaven. This is a piece of real estate on the earth. So given the nations mentioned in this passage, I didn't put it all out for you, but when you go home, you can read it and you'll see all the nations. We know where those nations settled. And they settled in the territory known as the land of Canaan. Some say Canaan. I've always learned Canaan. But they settled in the land of Canaan. But when you look at all the nations that are mentioned, it includes more territory than just that. So we know there's a literal land, but there's more to this. Not only is it a literal land, it's given to Israel graciously. Now, this is an important point. It's important because some people would say if Israel earns the right to the land, by virtue of their obedience and responsiveness to God, what happens if they stop responding to him? 
What happens if they begin to disobey him? Do they forfeit their right to the land? The answer is they would if it was given to them on the basis of obedience, on the basis of their responsiveness. But it's not. It's given to them on the basis of God's gracious will. He has given them a gift. And over and over, this is emphasized. First of all, when you read the passage in Hebrew, it says, And the Lord appeared to Abraham, and he said... And what's interesting is, it's the very same expression that's used in Genesis chapter 1, And the Lord said, let there be light. By God's gracious command and initiative, the world comes into existence. By God's grace and initiative, Abraham is called to bring a nation into existence. The point is, the creation of the world and the creation of the Jewish people are parallel. And just as the world was created by the gracious, independent, sovereign act of God in saying, let there be, so the creation of the nation of Israel is a sovereign act of God whereby he says, let them be. And so he says to Abraham, And he said to Abraham, go, and this is what will occur as a result of your going. The calling of Abraham is by grace, and it's independent of anything deserving. Abraham is not seeking God. We don't hear anything about him doing anything other than the Lord appearing to Abraham. And so this is a promise given to him by grace. Now, I really like the Reformers. And so sometimes I just kind of dig out their commentaries to see what they have to say about some of these things. Calvin says a really interesting thing. This calling of Abraham is a signal instance of the gratuitous mercy of God. This is done designedly in order that the manifestation of the grace of God might become the more conspicuous in his person. In other words, what God has done here is to demonstrate not Abraham's responsiveness but God's graciousness, and that his grace would be obviously seen. I love his phrase here, conspicuous in his person. So when people say Abraham, they're saying, there goes the grace of God. You know, why did it, was he blessed? The grace of God. And so he mentions, as a result of his grace, things that are nothing become something. And that's very true of Abraham. Think about this. Abraham lived, what, 3,500 years before the time of Messiah. And three large religions all pay respect to him, right? The Jewish people, Christianity, Islam, all pays homage to this man. Now, can you think of any other person from 3,500 years before the time of Messiah that so readily comes to mind? I mean... Even if I was to think of a pharaoh, I'm not sure I'd get one that was back in the 3500s. And even so, I wouldn't know very much about him. But Abraham is like, would have been forgotten if it wasn't for the grace of God in doing in and through him what he did. So in his person, the grace of God is conspicuous and obvious. Not only is this a manifestation of his grace, not only is it a literal land, but check this out. The promise itself is gracious in nature. It's not like the covenant made to Moses. 
The Mosaic law says if you do this, you will live. If you don't do this, you will be judged. Not so to Abraham. All the scripture says to Abraham is, I will bless you. Abraham doesn't have to do anything. In fact, in Genesis 15, God puts him to sleep and enters into a covenantal relationship with Abraham while Abraham is sleeping. And he's not even aware of what's happening. In fact, it says that he separated the animals in Genesis 15, and that was the way in the ancient world that covenants were solidified. And Abraham spends the whole day shooing all these birds of prey away from the animal parts. And then it says night falls, and he's gotten tired. Now, here's an interesting thing in light of the home groups. Remember the home groups Francis Chan was talking about, the fear of the Lord? Hadn't seen this, but in Genesis 15, you know what it says about Abraham? It says, a dark foreboding fell upon Abraham. When God shows up to Abraham in Genesis 15, even though he's falling asleep, he experiences something of the fear of God. It's a really interesting phrase. A dark foreboding fell upon him. Nevertheless, that illustrates God's gift to Abraham was a gift with no strings attached. So the promise itself was gracious. And the promise is made to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and their descendants. So now we start moving more into whose land is it. It's a land that God has given. It's real estate. It's a literal place. God has given it by grace. Abraham did not um, earn it. The promise is God's grace as well as Abraham comes a conspicuous manifestation of the grace of God. But the promise isn't just made to Abraham. In fact, I didn't mention this, but if you look at Genesis 12, it doesn't even mention Abraham. It says, I'm going to give this land to your offspring in Genesis 12, verse 1, 2, or 3. It doesn't even mention to you, Abraham, until you get later into the chapter. Then it mentions you as well. But I thought that's interesting. There's got to be a thought about that, right? Why? He makes the promise with Abraham, but he doesn't say, I'm giving the land to you. His first statement is, I'm giving your land, the land, to your descendants. It's only later that he tells them, oh, I'm giving it to you too. But more importantly, it's for the people that I'm going to bring into existence through you. Again, it has that uh, throwback to the creation account, you know. So, now notice this. In Genesis 12, it says, All the land that you see I will give to you. That's the first time it's mentioned that the land is given to Abraham. But in chapter 13, verse 5, it says, And the land that you see I will give to you and your offspring. So now we know it's not just to Abraham, but now who is Abraham's offspring? When you get to Genesis 13, 17, he tells him, go and walk through the length and breadth of the land for I'm giving it to you. So back and forth, he says, it's to your offspring, it's to you, it's to you and your offspring, it's to you. It certainly belongs to Abraham and those that come from him. But who are those that come from him? It says, on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham and said, to your descendants, I give you this land. In Genesis 17, he says, I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you. I will give the land as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you. So over and over, we still haven't gotten past Genesis 15. Further, the descendant God has in mind is not Ishmael. We know it's not Ishmael. We know it is Isaac. Because in 17 it says, My covenant I will establish with Isaac. 
And just so that we're not confused as to who the Isaac is, he says, whom Sarah will bear to you this time next year. So it is not the son of Hagar. It is not Ishmael. It is Isaac who will be born to Sarah. God does repeat the promise of Abraham to Isaac. Now, here's a neat thing. To Isaac, it says, the Lord appeared to Isaac. That's the very same expression it says about Abraham. The Lord appeared to Abraham. Here now, the same phrase is used of Isaac. Why? Because this is the descendant to whom the promises of Abraham is being passed on to. Not only are the promises being passed on to him directly, but the very same way the promise was given to Abraham, I'm giving it to Isaac. So there's no confusion. It's Isaac. And the same way I gave it to you, I'm giving it to Isaac. I'm appearing to him. And he says to Isaac, to you and your descendants, I will give all these lands and will confirm the oath I swore to your father, Abraham. So we know now one of the descendants we have to follow is Isaac, not Ishmael. But then the promise is repeated to Abraham and Isaac is then repeated to Jacob. In chapter 35, it says, after Jacob returned from Padam Aram, that is Syria, God appeared to him. There's the same phrase again. Just as he appeared to Abraham, God appeared to Isaac. And just as he appeared to Abraham and Isaac, he appeared to Jacob. All of this is to reinforce the land belongs to these descendants and no others. It doesn't belong to Esau, who is Jacob's twin brother, even though born to Rebekah and Isaac. Unlike Isaac, who is born to Sarah and Abraham, one might argue, but listen, Esau is the son of both uh, Rebekah as well as Jacob. But now God is clear. God didn't appear to Esau. He appeared to Isaac. And God didn't give the promise to Esau. He gave Abraham's promise to Jacob. And so the promise made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is also repeated to the nation of Israel. So there's no mistake. Remember what I said. These pillars, the land being one of them, is the basis upon which all of the biblical revelation flows. And so when the promise is made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and just so that we're absolutely sure, it's stated to the people who descend from Jacob, the 12 tribes. In First Chronicles chapter 16, it says, He remembers his covenant forever, the covenant he made with Abraham, the oath he swore to Isaac. He confirmed it to Jacob as a decree to Israel, to the Jewish people. Now, what's really important about coming from Chronicles, because Chronicles, in the way that the books of the Bible are listed in the Jewish Bible, it's the last book of the Hebrew Scriptures. Genesis tells us it's Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and his descendants. Chronicles ends the Bible by telling us the people of Israel are the ones to whom the promise belongs. And it is repeated in Jehoshaphat's prayer, recorded in 2 Chronicles 20, Oh, our God, did you not drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people, Israel? So whose land is it? Well, the Bible makes it clear that it is the land that belongs to the descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, his 12 sons, the Jewish people. And the land that is given to them is given to Israel forever. 
They don't always inhabit the land given to them because if they're disobedient, the Lord will drive them from the land and bring them into exile. That's one of the reasons I happen to be here in the United States. I wouldn't be here if God had not driven my ancestors into exile. My great-grandfather wouldn't have been in Russia if the Lord, through his providence and his decrees, had not scattered his people to the four corners of the earth. And while we may not always have inhabited the land, the always the land belonged to us. Why did it belong to us? Because God gave it to us. Now, why does Genesis begin with the creation account? It does not begin with the creation account because that's the beginning of history. Because remember, Moses is writing Genesis for Mount Sinai. It would be more logical for Moses to have started the Bible with the Ten Commandments. Here we are at Mount Sinai, and I went up the mountain for 40 days, and the Lord gave us these commandments. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart. You shall have no other gods before me. I am the Lord who brought you out of the land. Now, that makes sense to me. But that's not what Moses does. He goes back further to the creation. Why? Not to tell us God made the world. There's no one else that can make the world except one who is all-powerful and all-knowing and completely creative as our God is. The reason for the creation account is to tell us two things. It's to tell us that our God is a good God. And whatever he does is always good. And the evening and the morning was the first day, and God said, it was good. And the second day, it was good. The third day, and it was good. The fourth day, and it was good. The fifth day, and it was good. The sixth day, and it was very, very good. What is the creation account about? It's about the goodness of God. But it's also about one other thing. God created the world. What does that mean? It means he owns the world. And if he owns the world, he can do with it whatever he wants. He can make a new heavens and new earth if he ever desires. And the scripture tells us one day he will. He can destroy this earth if he desires, and in one point in time, he did by a flood. And Peter tells us that in the last days, this earth shall burn with fervent heat. In fact, one of the King James says, with el- and the elements shall burn, something like that. He can do what he wants with the world he has made. And one of the things he can do is give any portion of it to whomever he wants. And so what is Genesis about? It's about God's goodness and God's prerogative. And the reason the land of Israel belongs to Israel is because the land belongs to God and he can give it to whoever he wants. For after all, he made it. He governs it, he sustains it, and he keeps it. So the land is given to Israel forever. Now check out these passages, and I'm almost done. But check out these passages. All the land that you see I will give to you and your offspring forever. In Genesis 17, I'll establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant. Now, these words are interesting words. They don't have to mean with in perpetuity. There are certain places where these words are used where there's definitely an end point to it. But what's really kind of cool, here's another one, Genesis 17, where you are now, I will give as an everlasting possession. But there is a Hebrew phrase that denotes something that is without end. And that's the phrase, min olam va'ad olam, 
which means literally from everlasting and unto everlasting. And that phrase is oftentimes translated forever and ever or from everlasting to everlasting. When that phrase is found, it is only used of God. It's never used of anything else. The word olam and other things is used of other things in the Bible. But not this expression. It's only used of God and one other thing. It's only used of the promise of the land to the Jewish people. It's, only, it's the strongest expression in the Hebrew scriptures to denote eternality. And it's only used of God, and it's only used of the land God has given to Israel. And here are the passages. Here are some phrases where it's found only of God. But in Jer- Jeremiah 7, if you really change your ways, the prophet says to Israel, I will let you live in this place, in the land I gave your fathers Min olam va'ad olam. The land I gave to your fathers from everlasting unto everlasting. So while the other phrases denote a long time, perhaps with an ending point, this phrase does not. And Jeremiah is telling us that Israel has the land forever, but they'll live in it if they're obedient and responsive to him. The second place is also in Jeremiah. He says, turn now each of you from your evil ways and your evil practices, and you can stay in the land the Lord gave to your fathers forever and ever. The land belongs to Israel forever and ever. They may not always live in the land. They may not always enjoy the land. Remember, even during the time of Elijah, for three years, there was a famine because of the idolatry that permeated the land. Judgment can hit, and Israel can be cast from the land or not be able to enjoy the land. But if they are obedient and they turn to me, that's why all the prophets keep calling Israel to return, to repent. Even Messiah says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I wanted to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not. Your house is left unto you desolate, and you will no longer see me ever again until, he's calling them to repentance, you will say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. When Israel does that, we will find our people fully restored to the land and the Messiah returning as well. And there are many other passages that speak of the land belonging to the Jewish people. For example, Isaiah 11, we make reference to it every time we light the menorah, Shabbat mornings. But it says, he'll raise a banner for the nations and gather the exiles. He will assemble the scattered people from Judah, from the four corners of the earth. Where does he assemble them? To the land he gave to their forefathers. Isaiah 14, the Lord will have compassion. Once again, he'll choose Israel and settle them in their own land. Isaiah 4, 16, for I will restore them to the land I gave their fathers. Ezekiel, then you will know that I am the Lord when I bring you into the land of Israel, the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to your fathers. Amos, I will bring you back my exiled people Israel. I will plant Israel in their own land never again to be uprooted. Obadiah, but on Mount Zion will be deliverance. It will be holy. And the house of Jacob will possess its inheritance. Zechariah, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I will save my people from the countries of the east and the west, and I will bring them back to live in Jerusalem. I mean, there is no way to 
skirt around what the Bible says. You may not like what the Bible says, but the Bible tells us the, Lord, the land belongs to God and God has given it to the people of his own choosing. And that people are the people of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the people of Israel. And so when Israel celebrates its 67th anniversary this year, they're celebrating, whether they realize it or not, the gift of God to them. And they would fully appreciate it and enjoy it if they would respond to the gift of God in his son, the Messiah, who will bring the full restoration of the land to what it will be, as the prophets tell us. So what does this all mean? Number one, only, only, only the Jewish people have a biblical right to the land of Israel. The biblical right is unconditional. It's not based on whether they're obedient or not, although their obedience will enable them to enjoy the land. The biblical right is eternal. It is from everlasting unto everlasting. The biblical right right extends to clearly defined boundaries. The Euphrates in the north, the river of Egypt in the south, the Mediterranean on the west, the Jordan River on the east. And And one last thing, I didn't mention this, but let me conclude with this. Let me conclude with this. The gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. God does not, as the prophet that we all have come to love and admire, Bob Dylan has said, the Lord does not make promises he don't keep. The Lord only makes promises that he keeps. And so when he says to you and to me, you know, that One day we will be with him forever. I will never leave you nor forsake you. That is as certain as the promise God has made to his people Israel regarding the land. It is the land he has given to his people Israel. We celebrate this moment in Israel's history, but we worship the Lord because of it. We don't worship the land. We don't worship the people. We worship the Lord. And we are grateful to him for what he has done in our world and what he has done with the people of his own choosing. Well, let's pray. Our God and Father, we are grateful for your goodness and kindness. We're thankful for this lesson that we've learned this morning. On the anniversary of the 67th year of Israel's statehood, we celebrate you, we worship you, we glorify you, and we acknowledge that you, O Lord, are King of all kings, Lord of all lords, and what you do is always right and beneficial for the whole world and not just for a segment of it. So we do pray for those nations, those countries that seek to bless your people, that you would be faithful to your promise to bless them richly. We pray, Father, for that those nations that seek to harm your people and the nation you've established, that you would be faithful to your promise to bring cursing and judgment where it is right. And then we pray, Lord, That on this, during this year, you might move among your people as you promised in your word that you would do. 
and that you would open their hearts to the knowledge of Yeshua. What we have reflected on is marvelous in our own eyes. But we pray, Father, that your people and all peoples would come to recognize Yeshua, the Messiah of Israel, the one who will bring about the fullness of all of these promises, the one who is our Savior and Lord. Lord, we're grateful for the gifts that will be received this morning. Help us to manage them well. Use them, we would pray. Help us to use them for the furtherance of your kingdom in our midst. We give you all praise, for we pray in Yeshua's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our message. We hope that it serves to encourage you in your walk with the Lord and your service to Him. Do remember us in your prayers, and if you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at bethariel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L.org. Thank you again, and may our Heavenly Father richly bless you as you continue to follow Him. Shalom, shalom.